this is the era that defined classic Hollywood narrative structures. <clears throat> and I think there's a, there's an article by Victor Perkins, who taught at Warwick, about You Only Live Once, which is a whole lengthy document about the opening scenes of it and the apples, and about how Fritz Lang plays with and lays the foundation for classic Hollywood yeah. narrative. And these do this. I think the problem with it, particularly for a modern audience, is they are they are very slow. They are very both sentimental and banal at the same time. Yes. But they are oddly political, oddly, Od- oddly relevant. Very, absolutely. And actually, I think particularly some of them are actually as much about cinema as they are about the narrow. Fury, 1937. Uh, it's about a man who gets lynched by a mob. After being falsely accused of kidnapping, he escapes from jail before he is killed and vindic- in, killed in inverted commas, I should say, and vindictively seeks to gain revenge on the perpetrators. It's an Oscar-nominated film. Uh, one of the many things that Fritz Lang, as an, and as an aside, before we talk about the film, that he had to get used to, being that this was his first noir film, were the labour laws regarding meal times on set. Uh, he took his lunch before everybody else, and when questioned by Mr Tracy at 1.30 in the afternoon that most of the crew hadn't eaten yet, he said, I am the director, I will call lunch when I think it should be called. Spencer Tracy promptly removed the makeup from his face, told the crew to follow him outside and everybody ate together. One of many instances <coughs> where Fritz Lang would piss off the establishment, not just because of the content of his films. I think this is a good one about predominantly, obviously, the American justice system. <coughs> Mostly, of course, about mobbing, which was ever-present, not only in Fritz Lang's current environment in his new country of America, but also the country that he just left behind. The mid-1930s, many, many thousands of people had been targeted by mobs, uh, especially in the US. And this film is a pure focus on that, really. The film shows the tensions, the distrust amongst each other. For outsiders, not only regarding race, but even from state divides, which I thought was very interesting. Technically, it was it was fine. It was acted well for the most part. Um, in terms of more Fritz Lang firsts, it was the first film to feature film reel during a courtroom trial. Uh, so yet again, he pushed the boundaries there. Uh, there isn't, frankly, a lot I will say about most of these films. Uh, there is one coming up that uh, I am particularly fond of. Um, but again, it need not be said really, but if you haven't seen Fury, check it out. And by the way, one thing to look out, Paul, before uh, I let you have a go on this... Look out for Toto from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I know you're a fan of dogs, as you've made abundantly clear. Well, luckily he gets killed in the end. Indeed. Uh, but but this was actually that little dog, it's female dog, in case people didn't know, I'm sure you did. <clears throat> but uh, she would go on to have a further seven years in the movie industry after this film, and 11 in total. So there's a little bit of a name check for you. <clears throat> Fury, Paul? Fury. I, I thought it was excellent. Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's dissection of the mob mentality, which I think is is as relevant today as ever. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'd love to see a remake of this, a contemporary one, uh, done by a really great writer and director. You do well to find a more beautiful woman than Sylvia Sidney. <laughs> I don't like Sylvia <laughs> I do. Sidney. I do. I, it's very, very interesting because obviously, apart from the fact that, that these three films are all directed by Fritz Lang... They all star Sylvia, Sylvia Sydney. Sydney. And I, I just don't get Sylvia Sydney. 
So, uh, but actually, coming back, uh, the the mob and the lynching mentality, and and that kind of whole thing that there's actually a whole bit in the trial where he goes the the kind of def, the the prosecuting judge goes on about how how easy it is to blame the foreigner, yes. the foreigner, <laughs> which made me think, wow, this is just so so apt, and and how fucking tragic the world has changed so little. But again, coming from Nazi Germany. Yeah. It was real for him. But actually, he stepped into a country that was as much about that kind of mentality. Where he was a foreigner, of course. Absolutely. And so, and I think the thing that links all of these is the incredible politicisation that Fritz Langs brings to him. Yeah. And it is a very leftist kind of a, a kind of mentality as well, as well as, as an insightful humanitarianism. I, I, I think Spencer Tracy is a very kind of polemical actor. He doesn't act. He sort of tells you stuff. And, <laughs> yes. and he lectures. Yes. And you, you do feel that every time the camera's on me, he's lecturing you about some great social issue. But which which is brilliant. Cause I think, you know, hell, yes. And I tend to agree with virtually everything he thinks and says. But, uh, and, and equally, as you said, Toto's in it. And he dies. Yes, <laughs> the dog is dead. Fucking cries for that. Although I was just a bit disappointed that Sylvia Sidney didn't go with him. So no, nope, she's a fine specimen of a woman. Is she? Oh, she is beautiful. Goodness me, it's <laughs> fucking tragic. <laughs> I'm looking forward to showing you some beautiful women in later movies. Well, you only go for farmer girls, or bloody uh, God. oh god, great. god, god. So, so, but actually, fat farmers. It's, <laughs> it's relevance. It's insight. It, it goes along at quite a snappy pace, yes. given that it's... They all do, really. It's one thirty-two. you know, not a lot happens. The effects are quite good. Uh, and so I, I, I would recommend of it. Of course. Because I think it does have a pace, a snappiness. It deals with a lot of issues that I think are fantastic. Uh, you Only Live Once. You Only Live which Once. Which you mentioned already, of course. Uh, indeed. Uh, which is, again, Sylvia Sidney. So basically, she works in a public defender's office, uh, and she's persuaded her boss... Played by Mark Barton McLean, a great classic actor. Yes, that era, absolutely. Who is in love with her to help her convict boyfriend get out of prison, uh, gets him a job, he gets sacked, and then there's a bank robbery, and then he is uh, basically done for it, and because someone dies, he he is uh, electrocuted, or they're going to electrocute him, but he escapes, and she's so in love with him. There's a whole thing about frogs. Uh, you know, one can't live without the other. Yeah. It, it is an incredibly sentimental and kind of uh, film, but actually I think that's the point of it. It's showing you how you can manipulate an audience through visual imagery to think whatever you want. Because in the end, it actually almost says that you will go to heaven for killing a priest, which I'm <laughs> quite sure is not actually the point he's trying to make. But he is playing with a lot of those ideas, good, bad kind of like as well as social problems versus personal problems because actually Henry Fonda is supposed to be this sort of semi-heroic guy he's a bit of a small time crooky thuggy git he's a despicable character yes I hate him yes <laughs> uh, and yet I like seeing him die and yet he walks towards heaven and the priest at the end yeah. uh, which is very very strange uh, so but actually again well worth seeing again and I, I mentioned it earlier but look up for the Victor Perkins article which is specifically about this film, and it will give you a greater insight and, and you'll appreciate it a lot more for what Fritz Lang is doing with actual just the layering of images, the placement uh, of people, stories, and using some degree of montage, kind of the nature of characters he can do at the same time. And he did it with Lydia, the same thing. 
Uh, I think that this, the, the tagline for this film should be "Smoking Kills," because <laughs> it all goes wrong when she's go when she goes to pick those cigarettes up. Uh, it is. It, it does it not. It does. It, it's a, it's an enjoyable again. It's an enjoyable thing. Uh, Eddie is a totally despicable character, and I don't like Henry Fonda. I, I the present. I don't get his presence. I don't get his charm that he's supposed to have. I don't get him. Uh, but then again, I love Sylvia Sidney. I don't like Joan in this film because she's incredibly fucking naive, stupid, and annoying in this film. <laughs> so actually, what I enjoyed, and it's a, and it's a pleasure that many many sorry many films don't give me. I enjoyed their demise. And you see it. Hmm. I enjoyed the thrill of the chase, moreover. Uh, technically, from Fritz Lang's point of view, there are some brilliant things in this film. The heavy haze during the standoff at the prison came to mind as a real one of the one of, one of the best standoffs, really. Hmm. The tension was there, and there's just there's no music or anything. It was just a countdown, which is obviously very good. We talked about that before. A loud screaming countdown in the heavy haze, which is very very dramatic. Uh, but my favourite thing. My absolute favourite thing was the blurred lens to represent Joan's crying eyes filled with tears <laughs> when she was running to... Because she was crying at the time when she was picking the cigarettes up. Yep. And then as soon as she picked them up, the lens cleared. That was a masterful touch from Lang. Slight note before we move on to our next one as well. As you've already alluded to earlier on, uh, Fritz Lang was a bastard for most of the actors and actresses he worked with. Except Sylvia Sidney. She loved him. <clears throat> and the only reason that she, he is here for the next film we're about to talk about. It's because she wanted him there. Because she was in every film for about 70 years. <laughs> and in fact, if you watch Murder, She Wrote, she pops up as a little old lady. I mean, she, she, you know, she really had a massive influence in the early 30s, mid-30s and late 30s in, in Hollywood. And if she wanted something, she got it. It wasn't meant to be a Fritz Lang <clears throat> film. The next one we're going to talk about. There was obviously lots of people like you who thought she was gorgeous. Indeed. Uh, I'm, you're <clears> right <throat> to think that. So uh, without, without, but without fury, without you only live once, who knows what would, Fritz Lang would have happened. Maybe <clears throat> he would have gone back to Germany and who knows what would have happened. There. But he stayed in America, thanks to Sylvia Sidney, and made my favourite out of this little section, You and Me, 1938. Uh, two store workers fall in love. One is an ex-convict. Hey, while the other keeps her status a secret as it violates the terms of her parole. You can work the rest out for yourself. Uh, the hidden truth doesn't stay away for long and danger awaits the relationship as Joe, played by the wonderful George Raft, seeks a return to his criminal past. I enjoyed this one the most up to this point, Paul, in terms of the noir period because, uh, well, not just because, but firstly because it's got the best intro to any Fritz Lang film. Any Fritz Lang film from any era. It starts with a song, all about products that you can buy from the store, which is Mr. Morris's store, and the very important message of how you can have anything, but you've got to buy it. And this fits in so brilliantly with the rise of capitalism, and importantly, as this film wants to teach, how crime doesn't pay. As Helen, played by Sylvia Sidney, teaches everybody in a brilliant scene later on in this film, when the gang does get back together. Really fantastic stuff. I also loved the scenes where the gang itself were reminiscing about their days in prison. The noises they made in the cells to communicate. Really wonderful stuff. Uh, not only is this film for me about capitalism, but it's also a film about social status, or class if you will. Not only because, for example, a lot of the ex-convicts are working in the store as well. But also, the landlady of Helen's house is an immigrant. So it's showing all of this. 
I love the nature of the relationship between Helen and Joe because it's mostly materialistic and consistently materialistic all the way through the film. A bottle of perfume is used at the beginning as a goal, but also at the end as a means for reconciliation. Joe, played by George Raft, when he is about to get on the bus and go to California to move to Pastures New at the beginning, but he changes his mind. He throws his suitcase out the window, gets off the bus straight away. They embrace, except they then straight away, both of them, go to collect every single item that that was thrown out of the suitcase and put them back in because they are incredibly materialistic people. They're... For this era, there's plenty of ridiculous moments in all of these films, frankly. Bits where you think, oh, I'm not sure about that. It looks a bit overacted, looks a bit this, it looks a bit that. This one has them visit four countries in one day for a honeymoon, which is crap. <laughs> but they have one meal in each, and they actually leave most of it. Again, it fits into the wealth, the class, the money. Uh, and the fact that he was able to take her around the world in a day just by selling his bus ticket to California is quite ridiculous. <clears throat> but you just get on with it because it's just, it's just one of these kind of films. Uh, this is an attitude towards money, about money, with money, by money, by Fritz Lang, who has been in America for a number of years at this point, And I think he captures what he has seen pretty much perfectly, really. As a final point, I would say the ending is atrocious. If the ending, if the beginning is one of the best, the ending is one of the absolute worst. It just ends incredibly flatly. But as far as I'm concerned, Paul, despite the fact that he flopped at the time, I would recommend this the absolute most, really. I, I did quite like it. I thought it was very good. And I think the music was the, one of the most interesting things about it. It was by Kurt Weill, yeah. uh, who was basically a communist, basically. He went to live in East Europe. I think with Bertolt Brecht, they did some uh, some operas together and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he did the stuff with Lottie Lenya. I could be wrong there, but equally it's very left-wing uh, and very anti-capitalist, and then the whole thing is about that. And and I think you've you've covered it pretty much perfectly, the, the kind of uh, materialist, capitalist, and I think he's playing with that notion because you could read it as saying, you know, you've got to knuckle down and pay for everything, or you could see it as an ironic comment on capitalism, which is what I see it as, and I think the Kurt Vile stuff and all of his other stuff and the actions that he does. And I think one of the best bits, which actually is quite odd and irrational, is uh, obviously they all the convicts plan to rob the store. Yeah. Uh, uh, because, you know, they're, 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 because basically they're pissed off and one of the gang wants to, to get some revenge on something. And, and so they go to rob it and there's Sylvia Sidney with the boss waiting for them. And and the boss says, you know, I'm going to forgive you all if you listen to Sylvia Sidney. <laughs> he leaves it. And Sylvia Sidney, using a blackboard, yep. goes through uh, how much money they will each get. She breaks it down. Which, uh, from this robbery, they're going to yep. steal 30000 once everything's the cost has been taken out. Uh, the big boss's bit, the leader's taken out, etc. They end up with basically enough to buy a burger. And, and which is very much the kind of logic of a contemporary thing which escapes me, which is an economics book, Freakonomics. Uh, there's a whole thing in Freakonomics about how drug dealers now who work for drug dealers, the main people who sell them on the street corners, whatever, they would actually earn about four times as much as they do doing that 
if they just worked in McDonald's selling McDonald's because of the amount of time they put in, the yeah. amount of effort, and she and goes the in, low income. She goes into all of this. And she goes into all of this, breaking it down, which was really very, very good. But again, I think he's being much cleverer than that and talking about that's the nature of capitalism. Yeah. And actually, you as workers are at the bottom. And so uh, some nice insight. You could replace that with the profits from Mr. Morris's store. Yes. And how he, break, how, how he takes his salary out of it. Yep. And, it, and then his assistant takes the most next and then down and down and down. And there you are at the bottom doing the nine hours, ten hours a day, which they would have done. Yep. You could have put it all. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, and, and, but, it, but it was completely out of context for the whole Yes. Thing. It was illogical. <laughs> uh, you know, he wouldn't have done this. Uh, he'd have just banged them all up. All that kind of shit. But, but actually... But I think what it, it added to it, and which is actually quite a lot throughout it, is there's quite a lot of comedy in it. Uh, quite a lot of humour in a way, which is a bit different to all of the others. This is the one with the most humour, because there's an idiot. Yes. Kind of yes. A, a hood who who, uh, who actually starts the film by paying someone back some change, and he pays them, you know, there's a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14... Then there's another five. That's your twenty dollars. Obviously, it adds up to nineteen. Yeah. Uh, so actually, but very good. I would recommend it. Uh, and but again, <laughs> Sylvia, <certainly, laughs> I, I just cannot get over you liking her uh, in that way. Uh, George Raft. I think George Raft is a very acquired taste. George Raft plays George Raft. He doesn't really deviate from that. He was a gangster, wasn't he, in real life? Or was he yes, allegedly a gangster? He, he knew a lot of them. He comes across that way. Yeah. But I love it. I love it. So I've got to be and, and so it was just a little bit bizarre. Because, again, he, he doesn't act. He just is George Raft. But there was a nice bit where, actually, because he, he won't talk to her. And yes. she's in bed and he comes in and gets all of his stuff and goes out. <clears throat> and you think there's going to be a romantic kind of makeup or whatever and he just ignores it and he does it beautifully and I thought that was really really good so uh, again I, I, I recommend all of these actually I oh, think you'd have to really. absolutely you'd be mad not to and, and they're very good examples of the era uh, they're better that narratively than of the era that everything going from and looking at how Fritz Lang changes the nature of Hollywood narrative and direction and you can see everything that is now comes from him would you like to tell us about Moontide Moontide, uh, Moontide, Moontide is a very, very strange little film. <laughs> it is, and, absolutely. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is is because it's Jean Gabin's yep. only English language yep. film. Yes. Where they try and keep his dialogue to the minimum, <laughs> because he obviously doesn't speak Unfortunately, English. not his acting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, it's set on this little barge on the waterfront. Uh, which, a porter cabin, which, basically. Yeah, which is, which is, you, you just want to live there, but you just think the, you know, a little breeze and it'll be blown away. Uh, that kind of services other boats, uh, and it's a kind of bait barge, flogging bait and stuff to fishermen going out. And and, and, and Ida Lupino is in. Again, I love Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino is is a legend in Hollywood. She was one of the first female directors. Uh, she was related to Charlie Chaplin, and her her father was in the kind of music halls of uh, late Victorian, early twentieth century with with Chaplin. Uh, and she went to Hollywood with him, and you know became a great director. And you'll often see her in, for example, a Columbo on a Sunday afternoon uh, that she may well have even directed. Uh, 
But it, 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 it's, it's quite, it's 1942, made in the war. Perhaps younger band was on the run from the Nazis or something. But it, it has a lot of kind of symbolic, because it's almost entirely set on the barge, yeah. on the jetty, and there may be a couple of other scenes. And, and it's about... A uh, bar, a house, the water. That's it, and that is it. Uh, you would call it low budget, except I'm sure it probably had a big budget because it was a, a, a Fritz Lang film and Jogoban is in it, Ida Lupino's in it, Thomas Mitchell is in it, uh, and again, legends of that, that kind of era. And it becomes about uh, the relationship with this drunk who's there who tries to make a pass at Ida Lupino, and then there's murder and did he kill someone, didn't he kill someone... It, it's a fairly conventional, but again, it's scripted by John O'Hara, one of the great American novelists of the era, and a lot of great American novelists, uh, what's his name, uh, Nathaniel West wrote cinema films as well, as did Philip Marlowe, as did a load of others of that era. And, and so it, it is very literary yes. in the sense that everything means something. It it's meaningful, it's beautiful, the weather means something, the clouds mean something. It's very existentialist, you know, modernist, postmodernist, whatever you call it, about the meaning of life and the lack of religion, no God, you know, the, the old replacing the new. Uh, and actually this woman just wants to live in a little cabin with a white fence that just happens to be on the seafront, uh, which is a bit bizarre. And so, but actually, again, it's fairly short, flows quite quickly. Jean Gapin is completely out of place in it. <laughs> I think that's the thing to say about it. And if they'd have got a bit of a rough, tough American... Uh, bizarrely, it may have done better with someone like John Wayne, although I, I dislike John Wayne intensely for his right-wing politics. Actually, that kind of right-wing, uh, entrepreneurial, kind of fascist vigilante that he captures so well, he, he would have been perfect in this role. But Jean Gabin... But then again, I think he wanted to escape from the right-wing politics. Yes. So he just escaped yeah. from in his own country. So. Uh, but Jean Gabin, and you, you just think to yourself... Yeah. He's learnt the words phonetically as opposed to actually understanding what they are. Uh, and, and he's delivered them like a drunk. Uh, indeed. And he, he, never <laughs> he probably made, was. <laughs> and he never made another film in English. And this isn't the first yeah. time that Fritz Lang took a French actor and made their query misery for one film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Paul, I actually... And it wouldn't be the last. No, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not entirely sure... The, I did quite like the film, actually. Um, this is one I hadn't seen before, because so I was watching it brand new, to be honest. I actually, I did quite enjoy this. Um, my main problem, really, is I'm not entirely sure how much of an impact Lang actually had in this, because it was meant to be for him, but then it was given to Archie Mayo. But I'm, I think Lang did, did was kind of there on set, and he kind of, you know, did stuff, obviously. Probably, for me, the only really Lang scenes that we see are we see blurred lenses again for drunkness. Uh, it was used for emotion before... It's used for drunkness here. Uh, spinning clocks and that kind of thing. That's very, very Fritz Lang. Um, and fog. And fog, yes, and, and mist and, and all the rest of it. There's lots of fog. There is. Probably if he was a sole director, it would have been better than it was, I would say, without a doubt. Mm. Uh, as it stands, it's okay. It's a little bit long in the tooth for me. Uh, but the biggest problem is Jean Gabin, who is, who is, who is referred to as Charles Boyer from the other side of the tracks. Uh, which is a clearer point of view than uh, Gabby's performance in this film, really. Uh, he was just nondescript. It's clear he's confused. You know, he was a killer, yet he had a romantic side. Didn't pull either side either well. He wasn't particularly romantic, convincingly, and he wasn't fucked up in the head, as if you if want to a better phrase. Uh, I, I, he wasn't menacing enough. He wasn't nice enough. He just came across as weird. And uh, for crying out loud, if that didn't add to the corniness enough, 
His character was called Bobo. Yes. Uh, which is just terrible. Or Bubble. Bobo. Bobo. <laughs> um, however, it wasn't, thankfully, that didn't ruin the film for me because there were some other things that stood out. The fog. It was good to see Claude Rains. Good to see Claude Rains. Claude literally. Rains, yes. Uh, that was an in joke for Invisible Man fans, of course. Yep. Uh, but he was a good character. Uh, but for me, the most interesting, well rounded, fully developed performance was the scenery. Mm-hmm. You know, and to that, we need to mention, or I need to mention, Paul, Charles G. Clarke, cinematographer. Who, uh, and it's on that basis, Paul, that I would recommend this to anybody. And that's because he was nominated for an Oscar for this, for, for his cinematography. And when you watch this film, you can understand why. Yeah. Not only is it generally a beautiful looking film, and foggy, and foggy. It's how simplicity can capture so much stuff. You know, the anger, the romance, the trepidation, the foreboding of not only the events, but how the characters would develop amongst each other with those feelings towards each other as the weather was happening around them. It was just amazing. The freedom of the ocean that they seemed to have versus, you know, juxtapositioned with the claustrophobia of the tiny, tiny cabin and just the general tiny, tiny nature claustrophobic nature of the entire film. Three things, the bar, the the, the harbour, if you will, and the cabin. And that it. is it. And yet you've got the ocean, yeah. but you never see any of it hardly. I, and I think it had a lot of uh, kind of tropes of Fritz Lang, yeah. the fog, but equally the story. Good, bad, yeah. uh, there was a lot of class stuff in there as well. But again, being slightly overwhelmed by the American notion that class isn't the big issue, and the big issue is good and bad. Yeah. Whereas I think in in his earlier films, his German films, it's actually much more about class, yeah. creating the notion of good and evil. And this is more about, you know, in American society you overcome kind of class because there's the boat owner with his kind of floozy in, in his speedboat. But actually they're decent people, they're yeah. honest people, helpful people. They treat him as an equal and, and actually he almost has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. And so it was atmospheric yeah. and all those kind of things. And so, yeah. I, I, it's, a re- it's one to recommend, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, more so than the next one we're going to talk about for me, which is A Ministry of Fear, which is based on the Grand Green novel. Uh, Stephen Neal has just been released from an asylum during World War II in England <clears> when he stumbles on a deadly Nazi spy plot by accident and then he tries to stop it. The problem is when you take a novel, a classic novel, you bloody better make a good job of it. And unfortunately, it was a butchered film of the novel. <laughs> it was just a mess for me. But, but having said that, the seance scene is legendary in this film. Because what happens is, uh, he, he, Stephen Neal, it's a paranoia film, which comes into the war. The, Lang is paranoia, mm. particularly during this period and later ones we're going to talk about. It's all about paranoia, looking over your shoulder. He does paranoia in war, he does it in westerns, he does it in other things later on. Paranoia is Fritz Lang, because of course he is paranoid about the Nazis coming back to find him, for example. Uh, here, in a seance that they have, he's looking around, Stephen Neal is constantly looking around so nervously at everybody else in this seance. Who am I supposed to trust in this room? And you, the film kind of plays with this, you're not sure when somebody dies, you're not quite sure who the culprit is. And the film kind of runs along this way. It, it, it's just too much of a mess for me because the novel is that good and that famous. By Shrove, the film needed to match it, and it couldn't. <clears throat> and I'm not. But then, this is not Fritz Lang's screenplay. I would have been interested if he also would have wrote it, but of course, he never. He hardly ever did. In fact, yeah. he never wrote his own films. So, on this particular instance, Paul, 
I'm not blaming Fritz Lang that much. He just had to work with what he could. You know, it came out that he wasn't that happy with the final cut, but that, that's Hollywood, folks. Um, I didn't get on with Ministry of Fear pretty much at all. The best bits was the seance scene. And a few little interesting things at the beginning in the little party, fiesta kind of thing that happens where you, where a strange few strange events happen uh, to silence, which is mostly interesting as well. Mm. Uh, and then you start to see this labyrinthian plot and unravel and that kind of thing. It was just all too, a bit too clumsy for my for my particular taste. And out of this list, it's the weakest for me, Paul. Out of this little section we're doing now. Uh, I, I, I didn't mind it as much as you. I think it's very much a propaganda film of the era. 1944, America's been in the war a few years. It needs to boost the kind of anti-Nazi feeling. Yeah. I think they've picked a fairly good novel to do it. But equally, Graham Greene novels are much more about morality and kind of the choices people make. Actually, it's based... The kind of superstructure of the whole thing is is an assisted suicide story, which, again, uh, I've been involved in some anime of that recently, and I've watched a lot of them, which I didn't expect uh, for a film called Ministry of Fear to be about a bloke who was put in an asylum for killing his wife and assisted suicide thing. But then it turns out he didn't do it, so that made him okay. She actually committed suicide herself to save him the misery. And so, and I think the Graham Greene no- novel has a lot more of that kind of morality stuff. Not, 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 I don't mean it's moralising, I mean the, the difficultness of having a moral choice to make. And, and I think that, that doesn't capture this at all in the film. But actually, it's a pure piece of propaganda, which, if you just see it as that, it's not too bad. It's like these hideous Nazis could be everywhere. You know, wolves have ears, so don't eat their pies, Uh, that kind of thing. And so it was fairly well performed. Ray Milan is is a bit of an acquired taste. Uh, You know, he's from the same Welsh village, I think, as as Richard Burton or or that that kind of actor. But there's nothing Welsh about him. He's pure English-stroke Hollywood. Uh, he's, I've never really been a big admirer. He'd won an Oscar not long before this, uh, playing an alcoholic <clears throat> in The Lost Weekend. So he was quite a big star. He got quite a lot of credit. And it captured... It wasn't a bad propaganda film. It was a bit more sophisticated than most. It wasn't, uh, you know, the kind of Jermaine Greer... Not Jermaine Greer. Greer Garson, Walter Pidgeon, kind of overt propaganda. It had a bit more substance to it. You know, Nazis hiding behind the facade of contemporary but society. Th- this is done so much better <clears throat> later on. So much better, yes. which is what we'll be talking about. It, that, that's, yes. Knowing that's coming, you watch <clears throat> this and you think, ah... But actually, so clumsy. It was, you could see it, it's almost a quickie. But it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is, because he also made another yeah. film later on that year. Yeah. And cool. they're, they're banging out this stuff all the time. Uh, they fill the screens for propaganda purposes. And it's one of the better examples of it that's done with a degree of intelligence. Because trust me, some of them have no intelligence whatsoever. Oh, indeed, no. And, so, and it's fairly well shot. It's atmospheric. It's got... The shadows. Lots of uh, shadows. Lots of stair chases exactly. where you only see the shadow. And in fact, the, 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 the silhouette of the shooting that takes place when he opens the door. Yeah. Fantastic scene. There are some great scenes here, but yeah. for, for me, not a great film. Unlike the next one we're going to talk about, Paul, The Woman in the Window. Yeah. Well, The Woman in the Window is probably one of his most famous of that era. That is a classic of its time. Yep. And basically, it's about a, an old professor whose wife and child are away. He meets this woman. He has a little bit of a dalliance with her. Uh, In her room at the night, they kill someone who's blackmailing her. And then he goes and hides the body because he doesn't want it 
to be found. Uh, but equally, again, it comes back to that morality thing. He's a professor of ethics. He, he mixes with the police, uh, the, the police commissioner and, and the DA, etc., who then lead him through all that he's done and hidden and denied. Yeah. So they, they lead him to where the body is because they take him along to see it. Not because they think he did it, but because he's friends with Indeed, him. Indeed, yes. Uh, and but then, all, the way, all the way through you're thinking, when's the moment going to be? Absolutely. <laughs> when they, Despite when the, pe- the fact it's obvious. He's got the cut hand, there's blood. Yeah. He's got a cut coat. There's, you know, he's got the... And and it's got again all of those magnificent tropes of Fritz Lang: shadow, light, darkness, silence, silence, kind of expressionistic uh, kind of thing, facial acting, uh, borderline psychopaths, if not psychopaths, with uh, Dan Hayard or whatever his name is, the guy's the, the main kind of blackmailer in the end, who, who comes up quite a lot in future life, uh, future films as well, and and, and it was. Beautifully directed, it's precise, it's 1 hour 47. And again, there's a, a, I think we've said it, well, a Juliet and Alma Duvar. They are two masters of their craft. So even with weaker material, they can deliver something yeah, you of know, quality. Of course. And, and he does in this. And again, read up about Raymond Massey as well. Raymond Massey plays the DA. Read up about yes, Raymond very, Massey. Yes, very interesting. Because uh, a strange, strange person... Uh, in his relationship. Yet another person of his language that had connections to, uh, shall we say, the slightly less uh, clean Indeed. things in life. Indeed. <laughs> and so, but, and again, it's about blackmail, murder, morality, and uh, suicide, etc. All of those kind of things. They're all thrown in there, but done with panache style and narrative logic yep. that actually drives it along but actually doesn't have any plot holes at all. Very little to add. It's genre perfection. Yep. It, that's simply what it is. Uh, everything we have ever seen since, or even before, hasn't been bettered by this, because this is a template for that. It's the best moth thriller we've done up to this point. We'll obviously see going forward in our little chat about Fritz Langer if we get any better ones than this, but it'd be hard to beat. We know that. Uh, the performances, the twists, the turns, the sophistication of delivery... I love the long lines of dialogue in the film. You are there sometimes for two to three minutes listening intensely with complicated English. Mm. You, and that makes you realise how dumbed down are scripts these days. Absolutely. Because there are some words I didn't, I've never heard for a long, long time in this. Yeah. Albeit, yes, the film is well over 70 years old. Uh, you know, so amazing to hear such sophisticated delivery yep. and the ability to execute these things. These are long shots. These aren't edited together. These are long sh- long takes and shots. Um, the close-ups to music, it's all Fritz Lang. The little coincidences that happen during the film where you think, oh, well, now's the time. But you know he's not. But you get drawn into the genre traps and you play along. Yep. Get him. Get him. All the way through. And you know it's not going to happen. It's just wonderful stuff. 1945, Scarlet Street. Scarlet Street, 1945, uh, 1 hour 43, which is quite a long film for that era, given that mostly they were like 80, 90 minutes, uh, by and large. And, and it, it includes the uh, the legendary Joan Bennett again, yeah. uh, although she, she, I think she was beginning to fall out with him by this point in time. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and the, the ever kind of like Dan Duraya, uh, who plays the kind of slimy comment. And Dan Duraya is a very unique actor because he... He's very good 
but you hate him. Yeah, of course. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. And okay. and that makes it very difficult to watch because actually you, you want to like your criminals or your, your slimy little gits. You want them to have at least a little bit of charm to suck you in. And actually, he's just horrible. He's just horrible. Uh, so basically, this is the story of a man who rescues a girl one night. Basically, he's a prostitute. Uh, and from being hit by a boyfriend, and then uh, he reveals that he's a painter. She thinks he's a very famous painter, tells the boyfriend, who then tries to get her to uh, befriend him and basically get all of his money. But then she becomes famous as the painter because she's because of some complicated bit in the plot. Well, no, she, she basically she she convinces him to uh, put her name on the paintings, not him. Yep. Not Edward G. Robinson. She had her name on it, therefore she gets the fame. He's just a, he's just a regular counter, isn't he? So uh, that's what happens with that. And so and and basically, it's it's a it's funny because it's a fairly typical melodrama of the era, but it's directed by Fritz Lang. Yeah. So it looks good. It goes well. It's got a fluidity to it, and and the kind of noirish kind of elements, shadows, light it works effectively well on the streets. In, in the buildings, in their flats, in their apartments. Flats, you don't say flats about an American. Yeah. Then their apartments, apartments, <laughs> uh, etc. And and again, it's got Edward G. Robinson in it. Edward G. Robinson, who obviously was, was a great art collector as well and had his own kind of Van Goghs and stuff. For example, yeah. if you watch Kirk Douglas's Vincent Van Gogh, in Last for Life, for example, they thank Edward G. Robinson for letting him uh, well, there we go. have their paintings uh, to, uh, to, to, to photograph. He was a well-connected man. Indeed. <laughs> and very, very... He invested a lot in art, along with Vincent Price, another bizarre little yep. fact there. The pair of them were great art collectors, uh, and very rich, obviously, so they invested at the right time. Uh, Joan Bennett gets a bit wearing after a while. Yes, uh, as, 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 is Joan, as is Joan Bennett. And at, as, least she, at least she's got a normal accent in this film. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and she's not having fish and chips in the Bilstonian way for breakfast. Well, that's a shame. Which, uh, <laughs> which is quite nice. Which helped immeasurably. Um, but actually, she plays the role, role quite well. But it, it, it does stick out as, as, one, as a really good film of the era. Because I've, you know, I've been watching a few recently uh, outside of this with like Fred, uh, Fred McMurray and... Uh, Cagney and all those others, and you can always tell a Fritz Lang one because of its pace, its style, and its quality, even if the story is a bit weak. But actually, this story goes along quite well. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it, it is known as one of his better ones, one of his more, more, his more commercially accepted ones, almost a classic in some eyes. I wouldn't say it's that, personally. I didn't particularly like any of the acting in it. I say for the most part, though, because the last 20 minutes of this film are absolutely fantastic. It's one of Fritz Lang's bleakest films to date. Uh, the demise of Chris Cross, played by Henry G. Robinson. The demise of him is not bettered since Dr. Mabusa's mental breakdown in, uh, in uh, Der Spieler, the, Gam- uh, the Gambler, part one of the trilogy, which we've already reviewed. Uh, you know, him wrapped by the guilt of the murders, the loneliness, the realisation that the two murdered folk, the people that he helped to murder, are reunited eternally to love each other once more to taunt him forever, the use of the melancholy music, lots and lots of shadows, dim light, the voiceover thing which he hadn't done before, replicating thoughts in Chris Cross's head, absolutely brilliant. This is one of Fritz Lang's personal favourites, and I can kind of see why. Uh, and actually, for me, Paul, there are parallels to Fritz Lang's life in this film, mm. as I believe there's a, a lot of uncanniness between himself and Edward Jean Robinson's character, Chris Cross. Lang is an artist... Who as, who, as time has gone on, 
had to give up autonomy to the American system to make his films, as does Chris Cross with his paintings as he gives up his work to Catherine Marsh. You've been reading again, haven't you? I've made that up, oh. but it sounds convincing. It does. Uh, it's actually probably true as well. Uh, it's a it, it's a really really interesting thing. It's and again that last twenty minutes, blimey! If you really can't get on, if you really can't stomach Joan Bennett, fair enough, and all the rest of it, stick around because the payoff is fantastic. It's such, and a I think the leak film. What's really interesting about it is because, and again, you see it progress in these. It, it's it's a certain sense of the failure of the American dream. Yes, and the anxiety absolutely. that it's not going to deliver up to what no. it's going to be, and it's all a bit of a lie. And this is very much of a kind of it's the personal that his own life is a lie, both the one he's had, yeah. uh, the one his wife has. The one because, he ran away from. Because, in fact, yeah. he's married this woman because her husband's dead, but actually yeah. he just didn't like his wife, so he pretended to be dead. And everybody's leading a lie, but it's a very kind of individualised kind of aspect of that. So the dreams they're all living, or the lives they're all living is a nightmare. There's nothing, there's nothing dreamy about it. And when you go for that, it actually turns around and bites you in the arse and kills you. And and actually, this is the first, and you can see it because we watched these six in a kind of chronological order. We talk about chronological order. You can see that moving away from yeah. that thing being a very individualistic to being a much more of a social comment. But actually, it's in there in the original, and and it, it worked really, really well. And anything with Edward G. Robinson is worth watching. Uh, I mean, Edward G. Robinson, John Bennett. Last time we saw them together for a Fritz Lang film was the film he made the year previously, A Woman in the Window. I would say A Woman in the Window is better than this. But I would say the ending to this is better than... Well, I think, you know, well it's funny because I think that's about coincidence and unfortunate. And But this is much more about self-delusion. And, and I do yes. quite like that, yeah. that. This takes it to that next existentialist moment rooted much more firmly within the American dream as opposed to the personal narrative. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, Secret Beyond the Door uh, is basically a film about a woman who marries a man she met on holiday before realising she hardly knows anything about him. And then she starts to doubt everything around her. It <coughs> went over budget and it went over schedule while Lang was at a constant loggerheads with his leading lady, John Bennett. It wasn't received well at preview screenings and uh, John Bennett herself referred to this film as an unqualified disaster. For me, Paul, this is an absolute masterpiece and one of the truly great Fritz Lang films. I, it's a film lover's dream because of the mise-en-scene. But, base, but best of all, on a more basic level, is the construction of each and every scene. He has never used shadows better than here. So many fantastic long-distance shots, close filming of corridors, faces bathed in menace, torchlight. It adds so much to the drama. A great example of this is at the wedding day when the excellent Michael Redgrave is positioned half in light, half in darkness as he walks towards her. <clears throat> Just classic filmmaking. Just absolute classic stuff. And the music, which again, I'm struggling to remember being any better than this at too many points up to in Lang career so far. It brings about your own paranoia as the characters are going through their own, this, the heightened strings, the, all that kind of stuff we, we, we're so used to now. I don't remember it too many times in this era before and uh, Fritz Lang was absolutely nailing it. It's a film full of tension. There are lots of twists and turns. For me, it's an absolute must. I would disagree slightly in that it, it, I think it's much more of its era and much too influenced by the likes of Hitchcock. Yes. Who, who I think you could see this as kind of Fritz Lang's Hitchcock movie. 
through all of those things that you've just said. I like this more than any Hitchcock film. And Well, that's not hard, because I, I think Hitchcock is yep. incredibly overrated. And actually, this is much better than anything Hitchcock did. But you're constantly reminded of Hitchcock. So even though this is better, I couldn't get that out of my head. I do have a little bit of a problem with Michael Redgrave. Oh, no, I'm not having this. Uh, the, I like him. He, he's, <laughs> he's a good actor. Uh, <laughs> and so, for example, Hitchcock, who did uh, Rebecca yeah. uh, just before this, I think, there's, there's so many kind of thematic and kind of narrative similarities that it actually undermines it. And I think if I'd never seen Rebecca, and of course... I've seen Rebecca, because I'm an old man, uh, about 50 times, because it's on every Christmas, Easter and bloody winter. Uh, and, it, and it is a great film. So I had that, that, in a way, fatally undermined it. And again, with the English actor, Laurence Olivier, yeah. to the beautiful uh, thing, whatever, uh, Joan Fontaine. And so this really did suffer from it, including, you know, right down to the housekeeper, who may or may not be guilty... With a bit she of, she had a black a black uh, mask on as well. Indeed. But, I mean, it's all it's all classic stuff to me. And, and it, but it's classic stuff. And, yeah. and so actually, I think that undermined it. But he does it very well. So I I can see why you would say what you would yeah. say. But I think I've seen too many old black and white films that this reminded me of. In a way, they tarnish this. Not the other way rather around. the other yeah, way yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've come to this one quite late, and that's quite interesting. But I did think it worked very well. It is a fairly kind of cliched story in the sense of like that Rebecca and all those kind of things. Even right down to Torch, uh, not Torch, like Gaslight, all of those kind of films, you know, is he driving his wife mad or is he mad? And then, of course, it's fatally flawed by its involvement with uh, psychoanalysis and Freud. And, of course, I think Freud and psychoanalysis is just shit. So you'll get on with Alex Sargent and our Freudian expert. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I'm a great believer that... Freud uh, <laughs> tries to over-elaborate as uh, psychological, what are in fact cultural and learned, uh, and, and actually not that pathological which he tended to go towards. In his this sounds like a discussion on, epi- on episode 60 <clears throat> never going to happen. But this, you can see he's read a bit of Freud. In fact, knowing Fritz Lang, he knew Freud. He probably knew him personally. And, <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And, and so, and it's very that post-war kind of Freudian yeah, kind yeah, of thing yeah. that started to affect cinema. And again, because I, when I did what I did at college, one of the people who there was wrote a lot about Freud and was a big Freudian. And of course, my tutor was Andy Freudian, and I picked up much more of his and grew with him. But it, but that actually affects how you see the film as well. And so, but it's quite because because it is everything you say, isn't it? It's everything I say is. And so it's a must, therefore. Absolutely, and I would re- I would recommend yeah. it. And actually, again, you forget how Michael Redgrave went to Hollywood, and you think he's in all these kind of shit British films of the era, uh, you know, as as Lord Redgrave, whatever he ended up. Uh, but but again, I would recommend it. Joan Bennett is getting a bit wearing after you've watched the fifth film with her in. Indeed, well, <coughs> she does, she doesn't appear ever again for us, Paul. And so she and she on. is. She, you can tell that by the end she's just turning up doing a line. Well, yeah, she she fucking she, hates she him. fucking hates him right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is no doubt about that. Uh, Paul, how's Bother River? We're into the fifties now. Finally, it's been a long time getting here, but we're in the fifties. And it's funny because again, this is pretty much a similar kind of storyline, but on a much lower budget. Yes, uh, that is the point. So it is about, and instead, you know, is he guilty or is he innocent? This one, he is guilty, and it's more about the disabled brother. 
You make me watch a lot of disability. Films, this you I? you I yeah, have she's no facially con- disfigured in the world. I before. have no control. This guy's bloody limpy. Over the work of Fritz war. Lang, who long long died before I was born. Paul <coughs> Dark. It's and, not optional. Uh, <laughs> and so it's basically about this writer who, who kills the maid, who he tries to seduce, who rejects him, <clears throat> and he kills her by accident, but not really because he's a bit of a psychopath. <laughs> <clears throat> and then he, the brother comes along and he helps hide the body. And it's by this river, which I think is supposed to be the Mississippi or one of those big American yeah, rivers. Yeah. And and so and then it, it's as as they kind of all deteriorate as a family and the wife and all that comes to the they lie to one another. And bizarrely, I I preferred this to Secret Beyond the Door because you could see him working his magic on an almost zero budget. Right. And, and I really did like that. And I think it was a much more kind of a personal story of psychopathic tendencies due to his own personal failure, the writer. And and, and, and again, the great thing is, is to read up about all of these writers. And again, because Louis Hayward plays this kind of terribly effeminate writer. And of course, it turned out he was gay as well. Uh, he was he was actually uh, Noel Coward's partner. Uh, and again, and, and it's quite funny how they're all playing it kind of straight and whatever. And again, there's some deep kind of, if you're a Freudian stuff in there as well. But actually, it's cultural. But we're going to back into that. And so I actually did quite like this. And it, and it's snappier. It's one uh, one twenty eight, so it's about one twenty. Once you take out twenty minutes, time. twenty minutes shorter. Uh, and, and and that made a big difference. And so you could see him working on a, on a much lower budget, much 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 more effectively showing his craft and his skills. And I I I, I expected to hate this because the opening credit and that kind of southernness and all that kind of. And a bad DVD transfer as well. I I often think, oh, that that's really shit. But actually, I was really pleasantly surprised. See, I have the opposite opinion. I think this is really just an average piece. I'd say skip it. Uh, (laughs) There's nothing outstanding about this film. And actually, so here we are with Fritz Lang with Republic Pictures, a somewhat, well, not a matter somewhat. A smaller studio, yeah. which he landed after pissing off a few of the bigger ones with his bleak and controversial films, which we've talked about. He has a lot, and I mean a lot more autonomy with this film, but ironically for me, there's hardly any Lang in here. The music is just fine, the acting is just fine, if not a little dull. Not particularly any outstanding pieces of, of uh, filmmaking, shots-wise or anything. The drama's not really there. I, I, thought it was, I was very disappointed with this, but I did watch Secret Beyond the Door first, and that blew my personal mind, so yeah. therefore this was... The, whichever film was going to come after that, it could never match, and this film couldn't. It was just really disappointing to me. I... I, I the same reason that you also had expectations because of you know the budget and things like that. I also thought I would really get to see Fritz Lang come through to his thing, but actually I didn't personally. I just didn't see any particular scenes in this. Right, I thought it, because you can tell it's it seems to be from a stage play, uh, you know, set in a kind of upstairs and downstairs of a house yeah. and the corridors, and they've extended it a little bit outside of that, but not much. And I thought he worked within his confines quite well. Again, it doesn't have the flair and the panache of Secret Beyond the Door, and I accept that completely. But actually, I, I really quite That's your guilty pleasure the one, kind of, Yeah, the yeah. closeness to it. Uh, so, I mean, let's move on to the next one. Uh, Clash by Night is basically, it's a, it's a love story about a cynical woman who returns home after time away and wants to find a purpose. Uh, Paul, I really didn't like this one. <laughs> Uh, 9.52 we're at now I literally kept watching it because of Marilyn Monroe Uh, she is and don't you deny this she is a beautiful woman 
God, you're a man of you, zero fucking You taste, are insane. You? What is your pro- man what, of no? What taste is your major it? malfunction? Marilyn Monroe is a beautiful woman. She made this unwatchable. <laughs> she had the only bit I liked. For. <laughs> All the other characters were utterly despicable. <laughs> All the men are misogynistic and rude and ignorant to everyone. Mind you, the women ain't much better either. Across the board, everyone in this film is so pissed off and ill-mannered, I couldn't get on with anyone. The story was mediocre. It was kind of broken up into a meeting, a marriage, a baby, and a divorce. Life in a nutshell. But they were such precise events, it's kind of hard to see where everything went wrong, really. And that annoyed me. Well, I all can tell you where it went wrong. All of this... Well, Marilyn Monroe. But all of this... And then, but she had nothing to do with the main story, which is weird. Uh, I, I wasn't totally against it. I quite liked the... Let's talk about the Lang elements in this. I liked how he used weather in this film. Mm. He used a lot of clouds, storm clouds, tides coming in, tides coming out, kind of in, in conjunction with the narrative. Very clever filmmaking. Nice. But actually, everything else was crap. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this was not. It is not a good Fritz Lang film for me. I I'll tell you where it went wrong. It went too wrong on two fronts. <laughs> Why the? It's based on a play by Clifford Odette, and it was a play that ran for 41 episodes and closed because no one went to see it. Right. So that, that should tell you from the start, <laughs> it's shit. <laughs> uh, plus, it's a bunch of educated upper-class people like Clifford Odette and to some extent Fritz Lang yeah. exploring working-class life. Yeah, because they're in the fisheries, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. And, and that's the difference because he does working-class very well when it's about the bigger issues and we get to that a bit later yeah. on yeah, in the next definitely. Yeah. And in some of the German stuff, for yeah. example, even Metropolis. Yeah. You know, it's a bigger issue. Yeah. It's not about the minutia of working-class life, which this is, and that's where it fails. Plus, it is fatally flawed I mean, Marilyn no, Monroe, it? out the podcast. Which is just, she's she a beautiful is dreadful. Woman. She is dreadful. She's not beautiful. <laughs> uh, and, and, and equally, she cannot act to save her life. And it, it is just dreadful. Plus, every other character is wrong. Barbara Stanwyck yeah. is just oh, far oh, too so... middle class and affluent to carry this off of going down <laughs> without showing uh, kind of like her distaste. Of going down. Well, I, th- I think her distaste is her just being a miserable fuck. And, and she does that very well. And I'm she a is. fan of Robert Ryan. She's a miserable fuck. But again, fairly cliche, kind of drunk, miserable thing, his wife betrays him, whatever. And again, the charm of Paul Douglas, <laughs> who I'm sure was a wonderful person. He was by all accounts. Uh, but again, it's kind of like if your choice is between Robert Ryan and Paul Douglas and Barbara Stanwyck, <laughs> and actually yeah, you're living with Marilyn Monroe. Am I Marilyn? It brings me back to perhaps suicide, which is the best option. Well, uh, obviously I don't mean that, but I'm Marilyn Monroe, and we have a bit more of Marilyn Monroe mm. on the next one. Well, I'm going to let Paul, happier times though at least, the big heat. The big heat. Which I think is a true masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons it's a true masterpiece is Gloria Graham yeah. is brilliant. Yeah. And the greatness of that is reinforced by the fact he wanted Marilyn Monroe and couldn't get her. Thank <laughs> fucking God for that. Because her in this would have been dreadful. So basically, it's basically about a cop who tries to take on the forces of evil uh, in, in corrupt in in his kind of like town, everybody's corrupt. The policemen, the hierarchies, 
bizarre little elements. His wife, who is murdered, is played by Marlon Brando's sister. Jocelyn Brando. Which is just uh, right. really bizarre. And she's a beautiful woman. And she's, well, she's much better than fucking Marilyn. <laughs> well, that's for sure. Uh, but, then, but then my arse is more attractive than Marilyn. You are being outrageous, young man. <laughs> and... and and so basically, and it's got Lee Marvin in it. Yes. One of Lee Marvin's first great roles. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And this is where I think he truly comes down to the complete and utter moral, political and economic bankruptcy of the delusion of the American mm-hmm. dream. And it comes together in this film and the next one we're going to talk about mm-hmm. to absolute perfection. Again, one hour 30, not long. So take out the tiles, one hour 28, one hour 27. It's got a real snappy thing. Uh, it comes from a kind of Saturday Evening Post serial articles as well, which, again, were focused, snappy, to pull you back in every week to read the stories. And Glenn Ford, and again, I'm not a big Glenn Ford fan. I am. But actually, am. he's really good in He's this. fantastic. Uh, I think I'm not a big fan when he's in Westerns. He's not quite right for Westerns. But actually, in this, he's really, really good. And he captures that anger, that bitterness. And it just was, was, was a glorious film to watch. And I'd recommend it. And primarily because Gloria Graham, <laughs> she did become a bit of a cliche of herself in the end and a bit of like the gangster's mole. But actually, this was one of her first truly great breakthrough roles. And she's brilliant in it. I mean, I mean we've done Woman in the Window and Scott Street with the same cast. The next two, including this one... Same. Is the same cast. Yep. So we get to know Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham in both. Uh, for me, yes, no doubt, this is an absolute classic. It's a real fundamental piece of cinema, this. If you've got any interested in renegade cops, renegade detectives, call them what you will, revenge films, this this film started everything, yeah? This this is where it all comes from. Interestingly, the, exec- the executive producer wanted George Raft or Edward G. Robinson for this. I'm not having any of it, because Glenn Ford is perfect, as you so correctly said. Jocelyn Brando is a beautiful woman. I've already said that. It's a well-told tale. It's acted perfectly by everybody. There's some nice bits of humour in this. Indeed. Which, actually, you do need, because there's also some incredibly dramatic stuff, including the infamous coffee burning, mm-hmm. uh, the carve explosion, which is extremely well done as well. Just, this is one of his better noir films, and one of his better films, full stop. It's thoroughly recommended. Thoroughly recommended. Uh, which, probably... We applied to our last one we're going to talk about in this little bit, Paul, because uh, Human Desire, uh, 1954, a Korean, a Korean War veteran returns to his job as a railroad engineer and becomes involved in a sordid affair with a co-worker's wife and uh, the murder. Uh, now, we've talked about Jocelyn Brando already, Paul, so now it's time to talk about Marlon Brando, because Marlon Brando refused the role of Jeff Warren, played here by Glenn Ford, saying, I cannot believe that the man who gave us the uber-dark Mabuse the pathetic child murderer in M, and the futuristic look at society in Metropolis would stoop to hustling such crap. <laughs> he's a bit harsh there for me. I think he's very harsh. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passable film, at least, if not better. Yeah. Uh, I like the setting of the railroads for a change. The setting, because we've, we've had boats, we've had houses, we've had a lot. But yes, here we've got railroads, we've got carriages. It's, it's murder on the Orient Express, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, even the use of film for the beginning of the film, the actual train journey being shown as the film, and at the end as well. Uh, I do, I did find the characters a little bit dull. Uh, ironically enough, Glenn Ford uh, in this particular film, I find him a little bit dull. But uh, now, actually, Peter Lorre was wanted by Lang, so the studio wanted one. He wanted Peter Lorre, 
Uh, but he refused after the treatment he received while on the set of M, M uh, which we talked about already. Uh, I actually think that Peter Lorre would have actually added so much to this role. It's a real shame that he was treated by such a bastard Fritz Lang. Because <laughs> I actually think he would have ever, um, elevated the character of Jeff Warren to something higher. And the ending for me is actually quite bizarre. It feels a little bit rushed. Um, but what I do like is how the women are so much more powerful in this film than at any other film. Arguably that he's ever done, actually. Uh, and that actually the men are a little bit less misogynistic. But that's being said, there's still a lot of grabbing going on, Paul. Mm. There's a lot of aggressive grabbing where they just like, grab both the women's arms and just like, hold them. Um, but the women actually sort of get out of it in this film. Uh, actually fight back a little bit more. I like the way that it doesn't quite go which way you think one way or another. Uh, for me, it's not up there with his best uh, noir films, not Secret Beyond the Door and the Big Heat, but it's probably it's probably the third best out of, out of this list we've talked about. I mean, it's uh, it's it's recommended, definitely, of course. I, I I'd put it up there as one of the best actually, uh, because I think I think you summed it up when you're saying they're really dull, because it's, yeah. it's about dull. It is dullness yes. in a dull place doing yeah. dull things. And I think he captures that quite well. I watched a pretty rough copy of it, actually. But it, it didn't particularly affect it. But it, it is about dull people. And it is. It's the kind of reaching that point in the 50s where the kind of post-war American dream is over. You know, it's not just corruption like in the big heat. Uh, and the kind of like the legacy of gangsterism of the 30s is still ruling things and the power and the money. And this is about more about it on a kind of very personal level of people doing shit things in a shit place for shit money and shit lives. And I think this this is quite a different kind of film, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it, the fact that he's a Korean War vet, uh, as opposed to a Second World War vet, again, another kind But that's of, actually got very little in this film, really. Absolutely. Little, but, hardly anything at all. But it is kind of like it's the Forgotten War that most people don't even know happened. Uh, lots of Americans died, but it was nothing like this. And in fact, when he got when he got back off the train, because the film starts with him getting off the train, he then goes back to his office and it, and it, and he's expecting some sort of welcome. He yep. doesn't get one. Yep. And in fact, the guy says, oh, "I haven't seen you for three and a half years. How are you?" Yeah. So the, it, you're right, definitely on. That. You're expecting your job back. All right then. Yeah. Uh, and so, and again, Gloria Graham. Uh, this is when she starts to become a bit of a cliche of her own self. But actually, she's very good. And unlike, for example, say, Paul Douglas in Clash of the Night, Clash by Night, where it's, you, you don't see anything attractive about him, in Human Dire, Broderick Crawford, who is even less attractive than Paul Douglas, you understand it because he's a big, gruff guy yes. working in a big, yes. gruff industry. He, he's fixed In a big, gruff, yeah, yeah. working-class place. And again, so this isn't about working-class people. It's about the pointless drivel of everyday life and that's what it captures really well and I, and I think this is up there as one of the classics I would say try and watch a, a really good quality copy you know? oh it's on DVD no, uh, it is available and uh, but actually and again the train stuff it made you just you know and again the great thing about IMDB you can look up on IMDB where you can go and look at those trains <laughs> which train museums they're in which was just really really bizarre 